And if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and grab it and turn with me to John chapter 8. Uh, we're going to be in John 8. We're going to be actually closing out uh, this chapter of, of John's gospel, looking together at verses 31 through 59. I uh, just remind you, Jesus is, uh, he's still there in Jerusalem. If, if, uh, if you were just kind of, if you haven't been here for a while, we really haven't moved uh, uh, super fast through this book. We've, we, this is, I think, the fourth week in chapter 8. So um, we, we're still in Jerusalem. Jesus is there with the crowd that gathered around him in the temple. Uh, he's there among the insiders. All right, these are the elite of of the culture. The people who these are the people who have it all together. All right, these are the people who other people look at and say that's that's who we want to be like. All right, they they, they just seem like life works for them. Uh, they're the top shelf. They're the highbrow people. They're the ones who ooze confidence, right? They're, they're, you know, everybody knows those people, man. They just always seem to have it all together and seem to seem to just sort of glide over the fray of this world. That's who Jesus is talking to in this passage. So would you stand with me now, and let's give ear uh, to the word of the Lord. This is John 8, starting in verse 31. I'm actually going to read through 47. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. This is the word of our Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we we again thank you uh, that we can come here. Uh, We thank you for the freedom that you provide for us to do that. But Lord, I pray that all the benefits of, of having that liberty don't stand in the way that we don't take what you say for granted, that we won't 
stop listening because we've heard it all before. Lord, there, most people here have probably read this passage dozens of times over the course of their life. And so, Lord, I pray now that you would speak to us in such a way that you would, that you would wake us up, uh, that you would give us ears to hear, Lord, give us eyes to see, and that you would awaken our souls today that we might, that we might know you, that we might be drawn to you, that we might be with you. I pray that you would do that now by your Spirit who comes as a helper. Would you come and help us now? We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, we've been, so I, don't, I mean, we're still getting to know everybody. We've been parents now for a little over 14 years. Uh, for some of you, that doesn't seem like a long time at all. But for us, it's almost hard to remember at this point what it was like to, to like live without children. That, that's just kind of how it works. And, and, I'm, and uh, I remember that, that moment, though, like it was yesterday. And I'm not talking about the moment of, of her birth, although that memory is just kind of seared in there for all eternity, right? Um, I'm talking about the moment that I realized that I was a father, uh, that, that me, all right, that I was a Daddy, and, and maybe I'm a slow learner. Uh, that's actually probably the truth, right? Um, but I, I remember that. And I remember that the moment that changed me was not in the early morning of July 15th when we were in the hospital and she was being born. It was at midday on July 17th. So it took me two days uh, to realize what was really happening. as that moment when we left the hospital, as we left as we left Baptist Hospital downtown uh, and made our way to the parking garage, you know, across the glass tunnel uh, that goes over, uh, is that Taylor Street, whatever it is down there, and, and, uh, and, and it, it hit me just in a flash, all right? Not, not just that, well, it hit me that they were making us leave, right? I mean, that was... Like, you, you, you cannot stay here anymore, right? Uh, and they were pushing, physically pushing my wife in a, in a chair out of the hospital. I, that was, so that was one reality piece. The other one happened. Uh, the moment we stepped into that tunnel, this glass tunnel, and, and stepped into the light of day, and I looked down at, at Laurie and Caden. She's holding this infant and, and saw this little helpless uh, baby there in my wife's arms, and as the sun shined down into that, I saw her physically, this little two-day-old child, uh, physically sort of wince and turn away. Uh, her eyes were already closed, but you could see this moment of just kind of like, ah, oh, it's, too, it's too bright, and it just hit me that how helpless this human being is. I mean, we literally went by Target on the way home and bought sunglasses for the kid. Um, uh, it, it just hit me that, that nothing will ever be the same. That this child now is totally dependent on us for even such a simple thing as protecting her from the sun. And prior to that, I had no idea what it really meant for everything to change. Uh, it was, that was a pivotal moment. That's what that is, a pivotal moment. It's one of those where just, where just everything, everything changes. Uh, the people in the the people in these verses uh, are a lot like I was, and probably like most of you have been at various points in your life. They, they knew that change was possible. They maybe even were prepared for it a little bit. But it was, 
But it was mostly stuff that they weren't worried about. Like they, they, they had never been really concerned about their eternal life. They had never really been concerned about what was going to happen to them in the future. And so they were, it was, it was the stuff that they were worried about was mostly stuff that was far away. It was in Rome. It was in various parts of the world where they really didn't have a say. And as long as they played nice here in Jerusalem, really the government would leave them alone. And so they weren't concerned about themselves. They weren't worried about what was coming. It was mostly stuff that just seemed really far away. And so they were good. They were good, man. And for them, the reason they were good is because they were offspring of Abraham. And so they were safe. And in their minds, they were secure. They were part of the family. That was their guarantee. And and while the world itself might go to hell, okay, they would be fine. And then, okay, then Jesus spoke. And it was an uncomfortable flash of light, just like that one that hit my kid in the eyes that day. Look back at verse 31. This is what Jesus said. He said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you, you free. Now, now listen, he, he's saying this to those who, who had believed in him. That was, that was what we saw at the end of the passage <clears throat> just before this. I mean, if you look back at verse 30, you can look there. If you look at 30 from last week, we would probably conclude that things are actually going pretty well in the ministry of Jesus. If we just took that verse alone, we would be really encouraged. In fact, that's one of the reasons we have to be careful that we don't just pick a verse here and pick a verse there and put them together because we can paint whatever picture we want when we start doing that, right? If we were to just read verse 30, we go, look, Jesus is killing it, man. His ministry is exploding. The, the question that I, almost, that I get asked almost every single day, and, and if you ask me this, I, I don't get offended. It doesn't trouble my heart. But when I see people who are not here, nearly every one of them will ask me at some point, how are things going over there, like at the church? How are things going in the church plant? And, and, if, and I don't know how to answer that. I mean, how do I really know? We've got people hurting. We've got people struggling with the day-to-day realities of life. We have people growing in their faith. We have people who, who come every week, and I don't know if they even know, can spell Jesus. I, we, I, I'm struggling with children's messages. I don't know. How's it going? You tell me. Right? That's kind of what I really want to say. R- listen to the podcast. Tell me how it's going. I don't know. Um, and then, and then the inevitable question almost always comes after that. How many people you got over there every week? How many people you got there every week? I mean, we do count, right? I mean, we have to. We have to report these things. How many, how many people you got there every week? And every once in a while, someone will even ask, hey, have you all bought property yet? I really like that one. No, we have not bought property yet. But in the old style of planning a church, that's what you did. You bought property, then you built a building, and then everybody just showed up. We're trying something a little different. I said, no, we we meet in an old book warehouse, and the floor slants toward the loading dock that used to be there. We have not bought property. So, And by the way, we're not looking at this moment, though you can start praying if you want, because one day we'd like to do that. Um, it's a tough question to answer. It's a tough question to answer. How is it going? Because there's so many factors involved. But how do you think the disciples would have responded to that question after verse 30? 
when we're told that many believed in him. I mean, what do you think they would have been excited? Do you think they would have been excited? I mean, I do. I I think they would have been excited. This is pure speculation, but I think they'd have been saying, man, things are awesome. We signed up on the right team because this guy is, I mean, people are coming all over. Listen, we couldn't even stay, couldn't even stay on the hillside. We had to move into the temple. I mean, that's where Jesus is doing all his teaching. We got the best building that Herod could have, could build for us. And this is where we're meeting now. And it's, it's huge. Things are going incredibly well. But Jesus wants to test that belief. Now, one commentator described this as Jesus probing the faith of the Jews who have turned to him. He's taking an inventory. That's what's happening here. It's a reality check. And what he finds is that the problem was far deeper than these people had imagined. So Jesus told them that if they abide in his word, they will know the truth and the truth will set them free. And their immediate response, their immediate response is that is to say that they don't need to be set free. You're offering freedom, and we don't need that. So this gives us a glimpse of what we're going to call today the blinding darkness of sin. It shows us that these people who had claimed to believe, it shows us, it shows us that these people who had claimed to believe that they don't really know what they're claiming They don't understand who Jesus is. They don't understand what his mission is. And they don't understand why it is that he came to the earth to do it. And what begins with a claim of belief, we're going to see that by the end of this passage, ends with them grabbing up some stones to try and kill him. And the catalyst that leads to this turn is not some act that Jesus does. It's not him healing someone here. It's not him performing some miracle. It's not him tearing down the temple. He's not doing anything like that. It's not not something he, he does. Ironically, it's some word that he says. It's when Jesus tells them that he speaks this to them. He tells them that if they know the truth that he offers, if they abide in his word, then they will be free. And this makes no sense to them. It actually offends them because in their minds, they don't need to be liberated. It's like offering a gift to somebody that already has it. What a waste of energy if this is what you're bringing. They don't need to be liberated because they think they're more than free. These are children of Abraham. So in in their minds, they're not just free. They're better off than everybody else. They've got it made. The door is open to them. It's this weird mix of sort of ethnic and national pride uh, that we see amongst the Jewish people. I don't know if any of y'all have ever dealt with any of that uh, in your personal lives in this culture. I'll just let you wrestle with that one on your own. But anyway, what we see is that this pride, this, this pride has blinded them to the reality, to the gravity of their situation. They have the right bloodline. They come from the right family. They live in the right town. They worship at the right building. This is all they've ever known. It's what they were born into. So many of us today could echo that in our own lives. And so Jesus, he understands their blindness. And in verse 34, he just levels the playing field for them. He he says this, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. You know, it's a hard thing to convince someone who thinks they have it all, that they are really in need of something. It's kind of like buying a present for your dad, right? Like he's already got it, so he doesn't need anything. And then you buy him this one little gadget, and he's like, listen, if I needed that, 
I'd have already owned it. And he ends up re-gifting it to somebody, and it's really awkward. But that's, maybe that's just my family. I don't, I don't know. Um, but it's hard. It's hard to convince someone who has everything that they think they need that they need something. It's a hard thing to do. And that's what Jesus has just told them. Listen, these are God's chosen people, right? They're the children of Abraham. Again, these are the people who had inherited the promised land of all places on earth. In their minds, I'll say it like this, in their minds, they were the light of the world. They were, just by virtue of their ethnicity, by virtue of their heritage, they are the pinnacle of God's creation. They're the thing to which everything else points. And what Jesus just did with just one word was strike a crushing blow against all of their presuppositions about what it means to be a child of God. Because what Jesus just said is that everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Well, what about a Jew? What about a Samaritan? What about your just average, uh, everyday, run-of-the-mill Gentile, right? You, you see, when Jesus says everyone, I know, I know that can be tricky. When he says everyone, what he means is, is everyone. Like, he's not playing word games there. It's everyone who sins is a slave to sin. So it doesn't matter what family you grew up in. I'm, glad you're, I'm, I'm really glad that your grandmother was, was active in the church while you were growing up. I'm really glad that your dad was a deacon or an elder. That literally has nothing to do with your salvation. Nothing to do with your salvation. It doesn't matter what town you come from or what color of skin you were born with. It doesn't matter if you were the smartest kid in your class or if you were the kid copying off the smartest kid in your class, right? And some of us are like, dang, that was me. Um, It doesn't matter if you are if you have built a business from the ground up that is thriving and people are writing articles about how smart you are, or if you're the guy who's gone bankrupt 47 times and you've got number, I, you've got number 48 just ready to go. Doesn't matter if you're the one starring on the platform or starring on the stage or you're the one cleaning up the floors at the end of the show. What Jesus is saying is that none of it matters. There's, no, there's, no, there's nothing that matters If you are practicing sin, then you are a slave to sin. And yes, even you. Even you. And then he goes a step further. He says, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. Look at 36. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Okay, so it's not just that they are slaves to sin. It's that they are really outsiders. These people who think they're insiders are actually outsiders. They are outside the family. And not only are they outside the family, they are fully dependent on somebody from inside the family in order to be free. And how do we know that we need to be set free? Jesus is saying that we know we need to be set free because we know that we sin. We know we do. We know that we lie. We know that we cheat. We know that we steal. We chase after the shiny things of the world, right? The little trinkets of the world. And we make idols out of just about everything. And so it's not just that we are a wayward son. It's that we are slaves to sin. And that's one of the real issues with a lot of modern spirituality and what often gets called Christianity. It's this false idea. Uh, it's this false idea that all we really need, 
we really need is some improvement. It's that we're pretty good. I mean, we're pretty good, or at least we're better than, and normally we identify somebody in our world that we can point to and go, well, we're better than him. At least I'm not that guy. And all we really need is a boost. I I think the way we tend to think of ourselves is like a child in the kitchen who's trying to get to the top cabinet, right? But we can't quite get there. And so what we need is Jesus to come and just kind of lift us up, just give us a little boost so we can reach that thing. If we can get that thing, whatever it is, then we'll be good. We just need a hand. And so if he would just heal our broken body, if he, would just, if he would just fix this shattered relationship, if he would just boost us up in this particular area, then everything in our world would be good, and God, quite frankly, would be really lucky to have us on his team. Because apart from the fact that we can't reach the top shelf, we're pretty awesome in our minds. And so what has happened is modern Christianity has largely devolved into Jesus help us rather than Jesus save us. We don't see ourselves as slaves to sin because we've been blinded by the darkness. And what this blindness does is it convinces us that, what, that whatever we need to do, whatever we might need to have for salvation is, is really just deep down inside of us. We have what it takes. I mean, again, we might need a little help, but ultimately, we think we can do it. We we end up looking a lot like college football fans. I I know I pick on them basically every week, and you can count on that for every week during the fall, okay? I'm I'm sorry. I'm poking myself with this, I promise. We look like college football fans who said, all we really need is a better quarterback. And then, then, then we'd have the complete team. We just need Jesus to come and play quarterback for us. We've already got our family set up. We've got all the players in position. If we just had him to come and help us just a little bit, then we'd be good. But you see, what Jesus is saying is that the only real freedom that can be found doesn't come from inside of us. It doesn't come from deep down inside of me. Like, it's not a matter of me tying my shoes tighter. It's not a matter of me putting on my big boy pants and going to work a little bit harder. That's not what the gospel is. It doesn't come from trial and error or practicing harder. It doesn't work that way. It just reminds us over and over again that we can't liberate ourselves, that we can't be our own Savior, and the truth that freedom only comes from a Redeemer, one who comes from one who comes from the family. That's the truth, and that's what we need. We don't need self-help. We need, honestly, we need surrender. What we need is for Jesus to stop, to step into the blinding darkness of sin and shine what we would just call the irrepressible light of truth. And so Jesus enters into this world. The light of the world comes into the world not just to show us how to be lights, but to shine light into the darkness. Remember what the psalmist said, Psalm 119? He said, your word is, and you know it, right? As soon as I say your word is, half of you started singing the little song from when you were in children's ministry, right? Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. In fact, you're already breaking into the chorus because you sang that one in a round, so this side would have the thy word, and this over here is a lamp unto my feet. And then Amy Grant comes in and it really gets big, right? I mean, that's what happens with that song. But, but 
That actually comes from the Bible. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. And now the light of the world is there in front of them. He's there. He's present. And the result of seeing that light, of believing in him and abiding in him, is that those who truly know God as their father will prove it. They will prove it by how they live. They will begin to take on the family characteristics. They'll see the path. They'll know the way. There's no getting around this. And and Jesus gives them some evidence. He's not backing down here. Look back at verse 44. Jesus identifies the family of the lost when he says this. This is 44. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Listen to me. This is the bad news. This is the bad news. We talk a lot about the gospel, right? And almost everybody here will tell you, what does gospel mean? It means good news, right? We talk about the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. We talk a lot about justification and adoption uh, by grace through faith. But if we don't understand the bad news, if we don't, if we don't, if we don't understand the bad news, then we can never truly appreciate the good news. Mark Johnston says that salvation means nothing less than starting all over. Nothing less than starting all over. It's not just getting better. Salvation is not improving. It's not getting better. It's being made new. That's what Paul told the church in Corinth, right? He said, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, right? So the old is gone. It's gone. And then he says, don't miss this. He says, behold, this is what Paul says, behold, the new has come. Behold, the new has come. Paul, when he says, behold, what he's saying is, see it. Take a look. Take, get a glimpse. The old is gone. It's not here anymore. Listen, when the light shines in the darkness, the darkness isn't dark anymore. I mean, that's about as simple as it gets. When darkness loses its darkness, it's something else altogether. It's transformed. Behold. See. The new has come. It's a visible reality. We tend to spend too much time in Christianity dealing in abstraction, dealing in hypothetical, dealing in ethereal and non-substantive realities. But what Jesus and Paul tell us is that if the gospel takes root in your heart, behold, see it, the new has come. And so listen, if you are in Christ, whatever you used to be, This is good news, by the way. We we did the bad news. Here comes the good news. If you are in Christ, whatever you used to be, that's not you anymore. That's gone. That's, that's, That's not you anymore because in Christ you are a new creation. It's one of the most difficult ideas to grasp for so many of us. And it's for a variety of reasons. One of them is we want, we want to hold on to the mess of our past. We do. 
We want to. And I don't know why we want it. Maybe it's because we like it in some weird way. Even the tragedy of our past, there's this temptation to hold on to it. I've used the description. It's like, it's like we're walking through an airport just grabbing up other people's luggage because it doesn't belong to you anymore. It's not yours to carry, and yet we still, it's like we can't let go of it. Even painful, hurtful things. Jesus says, behold, the new has come. That you're a new creation. That's not yours to carry anymore. And sometimes it's the pride of our past. You see, the pendulum just swings both ways and everyone gets hit. Because sometimes we were so awesome before we came to know the Lord. I mean, everybody liked us. Every, every, every sense of darkness and abuse seems hypothetical because everything was great for us. The Brady Bunch had nothing on our family growing up. And now we just walk in, in, in sort of our own glory. And when Jesus comes and says, everyone who sins is a slave to sin, our first temptation is to look everywhere else. Yeah, I think you're right about that one, Jesus. It's a difficult thing to realize that in Christ, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And what he says is that if we abide in him, if we abide in the word of Jesus, if we find our identity in him, we will begin to bear the family resemblance. And so to sin now is to act contrary to the new nature that you've been given in Christ. It's actually to act it opposite to, how we, to who we are. When my sons get into trouble, and, and it does happen, I mean, it happens every once in a while. Um, one of the things I often tell them is this, this is not how we do it in our family. This is not how we act in this family. It's not how we do it. Listen, you might hear your friend talk that way. You might... You might hear, see, your, see your classmates act that way. You might have a cousin deal with it that way. But that's not how we do it in our family. I'll even tell you this. I've had to tell my sons on multiple occasions, you might see your daddy forget his family. You might see your own daddy forget who he is and which family it is that he belongs to. But that's not what it looks like to be in the family. Jesus is not going easy on these people here. He's not offering up uh, simple help, uh, self-help, personal growth solutions, all right? It's not just improvement strategies for a better life. He's saying, look back, at 30, look back at 39 again. He says, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. And then he just says it. This is not what Abraham did. You're claiming to be Abraham's child, but you're not living like Abraham. When I was a kid, um, I, I watched a lot of Star Wars. I'm going to pull back the veil on my nerddom here for just a second, and then we're going to forget about it and move on. Um, but there's a scene in uh, The Return of the Jedi, and I know you all watched it too, so just quit pretending. Um, when Luke and his dad, right, okay, like Darth Vader, the most scariest person ever, right? When he and Darth Vader are uh, having this duel on the second Death Star, the one that was incomplete, y'all remember, right? 
You're, you're visually there with me now in space, I hope. If not, just you can pause for two seconds and then come back. As they're fighting, there's this dialogue between the two. Uh, these two, one representing the light side and one representing the dark side, right? And they're sort of presented as if they're evenly matched, and it could go either way, right? And, and the two of them take turns telling each other, there's this line, that your thoughts betray you. Your thoughts betray you. And the idea here is that they can like see into each other's minds and, and, and sort of understand what's happening in, their, in each other's heads. And, and what they're saying is that their thoughts are proving their actions to be out of accord with their mind. It's that you're doing this. What you're doing right now is not what you believe. What you're doing is not what you believe. Well, Jesus goes a step further, and while he certainly knows the hearts, and he certainly knows the minds of the people around him, what he's telling them here is it's it's not that their thoughts betray them, it's their actions betray them. It's that what they are doing betrays what they are saying. Remember, they claimed belief. They also are still claiming to be children of Abraham, while at the same time, trying to kill the Son of God whom whom Abraham rejoiced that he would see. See, that's about as far away from old father Abraham as you can get. They might claim the family name, but they aren't in the family. Now look back at 48 with me. We're going to go 48 through 59. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known Him. I know Him. If I were to say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know Him, and I keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. There there are really only two options. I mean, let's keep it as simple as we can. There are two options when faced with the reality of our situation apart from Christ. Most of the world lives tragically indifferent to Jesus. Uh, They chase after the things of the world with with sort of reckless abandon uh, because they're ignorant of the truth. Uh, Children of a liar, according to Jesus, blissfully unaware of the danger before them. Much like like I was on July 14th, (laughs) before our first child was born. Much like I was on July 17th before we walked across that crosswalk totally unaware 
of the reality of the situation. But there are two responses, two responses when confronted with the reality of our situation apart from Christ. One is fueled by the flesh. It's one we see here at the end of chapter 8. We see that they picked up stones to throw at him. Uh, It's to attack him. It's to lash out at him. That's what we see here. Who are you to tell me how to live? That's, that's the cry of their hearts. Who are you? And then you see that whole dialogue taking place. Who do you make yourself out to be? Who are you to tell me how to live? The Jews in this passage, uh, fueled by pride, looked on Jesus as the illegitimate child of a little character from a small backwoods Judean town. That's basically what they thought of him. Who are you to tell us how to live? You can see it in verse 41. They're saying, you're the one without a daddy, by the way. That's that's their way of saying that. You're the one without a dad. And so they claim their superiority, and they go on the attack. The other response is less about superiority, and again, it's more about surrender. When Jesus shines the light of truth into our lives, when he exposes the sin in our hearts and offers us his righteousness, all we can do, all we can do is surrender our lives to him, knowing, knowing what Paul wrote in Romans 5, 1, where he said, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Since we've been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's to join in the cry of Romans 6 where he says, Thanks be to God that though you were once slaves to sin, you have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Having been set free from sin, you become slaves of righteousness. That's what it means to abide in Christ. Is to abide in his word, what Paul calls the, the standard of teaching to which you are committed. Is to walk in the light. Is to know freedom. True freedom. D.A. Carson says true freedom is not the liberty to do anything we please, but the liberty to do what we ought. Not the liberty to do whatever we please, the liberty to do whatever we ought. And it is genuine liberty because doing what we ought now pleases us. That's the freedom Christ offers us today. It's the freedom to be in the family. It's the freedom to come to the table. It's to have Him as a lamp to our feet, to have Him as a light to our path. It's freedom to live and move and have our identity wrapped up in truth rather than the lie. It's the freedom to walk now as a new creation. Knowing that the old has passed away and the new has come. And knowing that if the Son has set us free, according to Jesus, we are free indeed. That's the offer of the gospel of Jesus Christ, is to be found abiding in Him. Following after Him is to be in, to be in the light. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your grace to us. Uh, We thank You that you know us, uh, that you know who we really are, you know the spots, you know the, the parts of us that we'd prefer to keep hidden, you know the realities of our hearts and minds, and 
And yet you love us anyway. And yet you died for us. And you offer us your righteousness. You take our sin upon yourself and you offer us your righteousness. Lord, this is the good news. Lord, help us to walk. Help us to abide in you this week. By your Holy Spirit, who is our helper, come and help us to abide in you this week, to find our identity in you. Yeah, I pray that in Jesus' name, amen.